and we'll be continuing in our confession this evening, so you can go ahead and turn to chapter 22 of the confession, and we'll be looking at numerous scriptures, as we often do. What I want to do is read this first paragraph. Let me open with one more prayer, and then I'll read it. Lord, we do thank You for this beautiful Lord's Day that we've had, not only outdoors, but even in the worship and the fellowship of Your people. And we understand that even in the goodness of fellowship, very often our minds can be drawn away. And so I ask that You'd help us, that You would bring us all back together, and that as we look at Your Word, You would... Exalt yourself in our midst. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So let me read this first paragraph. Chapter 22 of Religious Worship and the Sabbath Day. The light of nature shows that there is a God who hath lordship and sovereignty over all, is just, good, and doth good to all and is therefore to be feared, loved, praised, called upon, trusted in, and served with all the heart and all the soul and with all the might. But the acceptable way of worshiping the true God is instituted by Himself and so limited by His own revealed will so that He may not be worshipped according to the imagination and devices of men, nor the suggestions of Satan under any visible representations or any other way not prescribed in the Holy Scriptures. Now what I want to do this evening, my goal is simply to try to successfully and smoothly make the transition from the doctrine of Christian liberty and liberty of conscience, which we spent uh, the bulk of maybe uh, a couple months on, to this next chapter, which is going to be another one of major importance on religious worship in the Sabbath day, another chapter that we're going to spend weeks, if not several months, working our way through. So that's what I want to do is just sort of get from there to here, where we were to where we're going. You'll remember at the outset of the last chapter, we considered that the various subjects that are found in chapters 22 to 30 in our confession could all be summarized under the heading, God-centered living. Having studied Christian liberty and liberty of conscience, I think that we now see that we might consider these next nine chapters under the title, The Application and Demonstration of Christian Liberty to All of Life, because that's essentially the way it's laid out. Remember that last paragraph ended by succinctly stating the goal of Christian liberty, which is that being delivered out of the hands of all our enemies, we might serve the Lord without fear in holiness and righteousness before Him all the days of our lives. Now think about that. All the days of our lives, which would also imply every area of life in which each day might carry us in all of those places, we are as Christians free to serve the Lord in whatever the area might be. So we begin to look forward to the confession and we, we noted the, the major headings that we're going to cover 
For example, now religious worship. In religious worship, we are free to serve the Lord. When it comes to our participation in the civil realm, we are free to serve the Lord. When it comes to ecclesiastical affairs, things within the church specifically, we are free to serve the Lord. And so beginning with this first category, religious worship and the Sabbath day, Christian liberty and liberty of conscience implies or or leads to this conclusion, we are free to worship God as He has commanded. We are free to obey Him in matters of worship. If we wanted to use the language that we saw this morning from Revelation 20, the idea of being bound, something can be bound from and something can be bound unto, the same works with freedom. We have been freed from something and we have been freed unto something. When it comes to religious worship, we are restricted or free from the commandments of men. That would be commandments externally imposed by other men. That would be commandments internally or self-imposed from our own imaginations. We're free from that. We we are not in, in any way bound to worship God by our imaginations. We're freed from that. But we are restricted by the commandments of God. We are free to worship God as He has commanded. We are free to obey God and serve Him in the area of worship. So that's the the general idea behind this chapter on religious worship and the Sabbath day as it relates to the confession as a whole. We are at liberty now when it comes to worship. We are at liberty in the area of worship. Now I recognize that for most of us when we see this title of religious worship and the Sabbath day, our eyes are immediately drawn to the subject of the Sabbath. We see the S word there because that is... I think the more foreign or striking doctrine to our native consciences, to the the world around us, when we hear the word Sabbath, that catches us a little more harshly than the idea simply of religious worship. Well, why is that? Well, everybody worships something. And in the world that most of us live in, in our area, most people even claim to worship the same God that we worship. So the idea of religious worship is not really all that strange The irony is that very few of the people that we will ever come in contact with actually would espouse a doctrine of the Sabbath. And so we we are drawn immediately to the Sabbath. Oh, this is the chapter about the Sabbath. Chapter 22, the chapter on the Sabbath. Well, notice that this chapter of eight paragraphs, only two of them make reference to the Sabbath. Now, this does not imply that the Sabbath is not important, because it is. Rather, it implies that the true doctrine of the Sabbath and a right observance of the Sabbath comes not from properly marking our calendars, but by first having our hearts steered in proper worship. That's where it starts. If we wanted to just overview the chapter, and you can, if you've got a copy, you can just notice several words in the first paragraph. We, we see the fundamental nature of worship and then the scriptural regulation of worship, and we'll, we'll start to look through that this evening. Paragraph 2, religious worship is to be given to God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's dealing with the object of our worship. Paragraph 3, prayer with thanksgiving. Paragraph 3 deals with prayer as worship, an incredibly helpful paragraph. Prayer as worship. Paragraph 4 goes into 
what is true prayer over against false prayer, which would have been a matter uh, that they dealt with uh, with regard to the Roman Catholic Church especially, and the types of prayers they offer. Paragraph 5 deals with uh, various elements or parts of worship. Scriptures, preaching, hearing the Word of God, teaching, admonishing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Baptism, the Lord's Supper, humiliation, fastings, thanksgivings. These are all proper parts or elements of worship. Paragraph 6 deals with what I'm calling the universal location of worship. We can worship anywhere and specifically in certain, in certain atmospheres with our families and in corporate worship. And then when we get to paragraph 7, that's where we deal with the day of corporate worship. And paragraph 8 is, uh, takes up the proper observance of that day. So you see that the bulk of these chapters deal with worship itself. A small portion at the end deals with the Sabbath. What does that teach us? Again, it teaches us that our Reformed and especially particular Baptist forefathers saw the doctrine of the day as an outworking of their doctrine of worship. It was an outworking of the bedrock, which is worship. True worship itself is what makes the Sabbath what it is and what it ought to be, and not vice versa. True worship. Setting aside the day does not guarantee true worship. And there are no doubt non-Sabbatarians who worship more truly from the heart than some who are sticklers for the day and what may or may not be done on the day, but who never approach it from an attitude of true worship. We've got to get that in our minds. We must aim at having our hearts taken up with true worship preeminently. That's where we begin. And true worship always begins with God and a true and right knowledge of God as He's revealed Himself. Failures and sins in worship are always rooted in our misapprehensions of who God is and what God has said. We start with worship. So this chapter begins with an opening paragraph that establishes the basic premise of worship itself. We're back to paragraph 1. This paragraph is a big paragraph made up of two sentences. Two main ideas. The first, worship is natural. And the second, true worship requires supernatural intervention. Now this week we're only going to deal with the first sentence, which simply points out how natural it is to worship God. And so I hope this will be an encouragement. I hope it will be a very simple reminder of who God is and that we ought to worship Him. So I've broken it up again into two headings, God in the light of nature, and then secondly, man in the light of God. First, God in the light of nature. Notice the confession says that the light of nature shows that there is a God who hath lordship and sovereignty over all, is just, good, and doth good unto all. Now first, we can ask again, what is the light of nature? And I say again because we've seen this phrase before. The light of nature is the reasoning or understanding faculty given to man as man, as human beings. It's the extent of understanding that a man can have simply because he's a man 
with a mind. And he has the ability to receive information from the world around him. It's man's understanding apart from any natural or supernatural work. It's what he has by natural generation. You come out of the womb, you can perceive and receive something of the world around you and you can reason through that and deduce natural light, a, a disclosure, a revealing of some things just because you're a human being. Now, there are several statements in our confession that have already prepared us for the reference here to this light of nature. Back in the very first paragraph of the very first chapter, we read these words, The Holy Scripture is the only sufficient, certain, and infallible rule of all saving knowledge, faith, and obedience, although the light of nature... And the works of creation and providence, no, the light of nature, notice, the light of nature, that's in us. Works of creation and providence, that's what God has done. These things do so far manifest the goodness, wisdom, and power of God, to who? To man. As to leave men inexcusable. Yet they are not sufficient to give that knowledge of God and His will which is necessary unto salvation. So, so by the light of nature, because God has done something outside of us, and God has created us with something inside of us, we can take note of that. We can learn some things about God. But this knowledge is sufficient to damn us. It is insufficient to save us. Now, paragraph 2 of chapter 20 said, This promise of Christ and salvation by Him is revealed only by the Word of God. Neither do the works of creation and providence, God's works, with the light of nature, how man perceives that, make discovery of Christ or of grace by Him, so much as in a general or obscure way. Now this is the same truth as paragraph 1, although it's heavy-weighted on the other side. Paragraph 1 says, here's all that God reveals, and here's the little bit of uh, what, what the light of nature can't do. Here is the same truth flipped over. On the other end, special revelation is given to reveal Christ. General revelation can't. The light of nature is the means by which we receive general revelation. In both of these statements, we see the proficiency of the light of nature and the deficiency of the light of nature. It does reveal something, and we can perceive something about God, but it does not reveal enough about God, and we cannot perceive enough about God through the light of nature to bring us to salvation in Christ. Back to the first chapter, paragraph 6, and this is going to play into our study here of religious worship. Paragraph 6 of chapter 1, There are some circumstances concerning the worship of God and the government of the church common to human actions and societies which are to be ordered by the light of nature. But notice, and Christian prudence according to the general rules of the Word which are to be observed. So there we saw that that light of nature... Once it is coupled with Christian prudence and laid beside the special revelation of the Word of God can give us aid in some matters of worship which may not be expressly stated in Scripture. For example, when it comes to singing the Psalms, and I'm going to pick a tune to sing the Psalms to, the Bible doesn't tell me what tune to pick. But I know the Bible does say that we are to sing psalms. I know that the Bible says we are to sing together. So 
the, the light of nature plus Christian prudence laid beside what the Word does says teaches me the tune to amazing grace will work. Why? Because I assume most in our congregation will pick up on that tune quickly. Is it because that's my favorite tune? No, it is a good one. I noticed that this morning. It is a good tune. But that's not why we pick it. I pick it because I want to sing together. And the togetherness of the singing is more important to me than, well, let's learn a new tune. I want to sing together. So I, I give it to... That, that's what the point is there. And there, there are many things like that. The light of nature with Christian prudence, with the rules of the Word, come together so that we can deduce certain things. But the light of nature... This comprehension of man rooted in his nature as man reveals some things about God but does not reveal other things. What it does reveal about God we call natural theology. Here's a definition of natural theology. The knowledge of God that is available to reason through the light of nature. Natural theology can know of God as the highest good and it can know the end of man in God on the basis of perfect obedience to the natural law. It is therefore insufficient to save man, but sufficient to leave him without excuse. In other words, again, we can know some things. We can't know all things. And all men know enough to leave them without excuse before God. This light of nature, then, is available to all men. Which means that the confession at this point is not taking into consideration whether this is a regenerate man or an unregenerate man. It's just saying the light of nature. As human beings, there are things that we can learn about God. So then, following that, we have this God of nature described. The light of nature is sufficient to reveal to all men that there is a God who hath lordship and sovereignty over all, is just, good, and doth good unto all. Now there are several attributes of God that are laid out here. And again, these are things which any man, even those void of the Holy Spirit, can learn about God. First, His existence. That there is a God. All men, according to the light of nature, can see that there is a God. That He exists. Romans 1 is the classic text, verses 19 to 20. For what can be known about God... There are some things that can be known to lost men. What can be known about God is plain to them. Because God has shown it to them. Where did He show it to them? Well, His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world, in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. They, who have the light of nature, who are able to see the things that have been created, they can deduce, they can learn that there is a God. That He is eternal, that He is all-powerful, that He is divine. He is God. They can know that, and they do know that. Secondly, there's a reference to His Lordship. And His sovereignty. There is a God who hath lordship and sovereignty over all. He has the rule. God sits in the seat of power over all things. Men can know this through the light of nature. Acts 17, verses 22 and 23. Paul's preaching, you remember, in the Areopagus in Athens. And he says, Men of Athens, these are lost, unregenerate men. Men of Athens... 
I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. Lost men. They're religious. They worship. They're worshiping. And they had their own gods of worship. But they also recognized, for all of the gods that we have created and came up with in our imaginations, there must be somewhere another god over and above all of this. We just call Him the unknown god. We know He's there. They knew this. They recognized there is a god who is Lord over all, who sits above all in sovereign power. So they called Him the unknown god. By the light of nature, men can learn that God is just. That He will punish the evildoer. That He seeks to sustain those who are in a pitiable estate. Romans 2, again we've seen this text several times recently. For when Gentiles who do not have the law, by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law, they show that the work of the law, that would be the moral law of God, they're showing that that moral law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. Notice, the Gentiles, they did not have the revelation of the law. They had natural, the light of nature. They had revelation, and they had some rule of law. As a matter of fact, some rule of law that where they actually carried out things that were in, in accord with the very revealed law of God. And they had laws of justice. Their own consciences would convict them in matters of justice. They recognized, or they could, there is some externally imposed rule of justice to which we will answer. And so they would then execute that same on others. And the flip side of that would be that in most societies of men, even if it's not enacted from top-down legislation, the common person recognizes that it is good to help the helpless. That people should not be treated unjustly. Where does that come from? That comes from our Creator God who judges the wicked and will ensure that all things are done justly before men. That, that men can see this. There is a God. He's Lord. He's sovereign. He's just. He's also good and doth good unto all. God's goodness here is not simply His moral uprightness. It's His complete perfection and suitability to His creatures. When God looked at the world that He had made and He said, Behold, it is very good. He wasn't saying, Behold, it is very morally upright. No, He's saying, This thing is perfect. I have put all pieces together as they ought to be in perfect form. That's what it means to be good. Men can see that God is good. Psalm 145.9 says, The Lord is good to all, and His mercy is over all that He has made. Men can see it. God is good. Matthew 5.45, God makes His Son to rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. He is good. He does good. He suits His creation well. And men can see this. And you know this stuff, right? You know that God is Lord, that He's sovereign, that He's just, that He's good, that He does good to all. You, I think we would all confess these things are true about God. He exists. He's Lord. He's sovereign. He's just. He's good. 
You should be able to see and confess this. Not because you're a Christian, but because you're a human being. Created by this God. This is God in the light of nature. We see it. We know it. All men can see it and know it. The fact that men would would reject it is, as Romans says, they are suppressing the truth in their unrighteousness. But this is God in the light of nature. We can see these things. So secondly, man in the light of God. Man in the light of God. The reality of who God is and what can be known of God demands more from us than mere acknowledgement or confession. I think we could show from the Scriptures that the demons of hell and the devil himself sees and knows all of these things about God, that He is Lord, that He is sovereign, that He is just, that He is good, that He does good to all. They know that. And yet, seeing and knowing and even confessing these things are not the full extent of, what, of the expectation of mankind. In light of God, all creatures, but especially mankind, who is the particular object of God's goodness and His mercy, should worship Him. Not just see it. Not just know it. Not just confess it. Worship. Man, in light of God, ought to worship. The confession says, and is, speaking of God, and is therefore to be feared, loved, praised, called upon, trusted in, and served with all the heart and all the soul and with all the might. This is the natural response expected from mankind. Notice that little phrase, and is therefore. In light of who God is, because of the very nature of God, because we can see the nature of God through the nature that God has created, therefore, He is to be feared, loved, praised, called upon, trusted in, and served. He is the Creator, and we are His creatures. Therefore, He is to be feared, loved, praised, called upon, trusted in, and served. He is Lord and sovereign over all, and we are His subjects. Therefore, He is to be feared, loved, praised, called upon, trusted in, and served. He is all goodness, and we are the ones who get to adore His goodness. We are the beneficiaries of His goodness. Therefore, He is to be feared, loved, praised, called upon, trusted, and served. These things should be natural. Simply because of who He is and because of who we are. He is to be feared. God in all of His goodness ought to be the ever-present reality perfuming the atmosphere of our existence. He is to be feared. All of our actions ought to be carried out in light of Him. All of our thoughts ought to be measured by Him. All things that we do should be done with Him in mind and His glory as our goal. He is to be sanctified in our hearts as holy, as God, and as King. He is to be feared. The confession here references Jeremiah chapter 10, verses 6 to 8. There is none like you, O Lord... You are great 
and your name is great in might. Who would not fear you, O King of the nations? For this is your due. For among all the wise ones of the nations and in all their kingdoms there is none like you. They are both stupid and foolish. The instruction of idols is but wood. Fearing God is His due. It's owed to Him. It is expected. It is only reasonable in light of who God is that He be the ever-present reality of our existence. And those who don't fear God are stupid. They're foolish. They're like pieces of wood. You see, it is reasonable for a log to lack a fear of God because that log has no rational faculties with which to fear God. Men who do not fear God are acting so contrary to their nature, they're acting like a piece of wood. They're stupid. They're foolish. How could you not fear this God? He is to be feared. Psalm 130, verses 3 and 4. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities... Oh Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. Now think about that. This fear, and I would suggest there are two fears referenced here, are both, they're both rooted in who God is. He's just. If you should mark iniquities, who could stand? That's a fear of terror, the fear of judgment. Who could stand before you? But at the same time, as forgiver, as the one who forgives, with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. That's a godly fear. God is to be feared. Secondly, God is to be loved. He should be loved. We're commanded in Mark 12, 33, to love Him with all the heart, with all the understanding, with all the strength. God ought to be adored in our hearts. God ought to be high in our esteem and in our affections. The truth of who God is should cause us delight when we bring it to mind. We should have a personal, individual fondness of God beyond affirmation. We can stand here all day long and affirm the attributes of God, but we are commanded to love Him, to hear and consider who God is and have our hearts swell up within us and say, I love Him. I love that God. I delight in Him. He is to be loved. He's to be praised. Psalm 117, Praise the Lord, all nations. Extol Him, all peoples, for great is His steadfast love toward us, and the faithfulness of the Lord endures forever. Praise the Lord. It's commanded. He is to be praised. To be praised, or, or to praise, is to, for the most part, verbally laud God. It is to say good things about God and to God. It is to eulogize God, to tell Him the good things about Him, to tell others the good things about Him, to praise Him. It is to speak highly of God in all of His perfections. It is to speak highly of His eternal nature, to speak highly of His power, to speak highly of His immutability, to speak highly of His faithfulness, to speak highly of His justice. Just go down the line as often as you have opportunity and vocalize your appreciation for God's nature. To just praise Him. 
Say good things about Him. That's natural. That's very natural for us. It ought to be done. We ought to praise Him. He's to be called upon. The idea here is that God ought to be the one that we call upon in times of need. Psalm 50, verses 14 and 15, Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and perform your vows to the Most High and call upon Me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you shall glorify Me. That's God speaking. He's the only deliverer. Why would we not call upon Him? Why would we call upon anybody else? He's to be called upon and no other. Psalm 145, 18, The Lord is near to all who call on Him. To all who call on Him in truth. When we call, He's near. But we must call in truth. The truth of who God is. The truth of what God does. The truth of who we are. The truth of what our real needs are. You call upon God in truth. He's near. Nobody else can do that. Why would we call upon anybody else? He's the one that's to be called upon. Romans 10, 13, quoting from... Joel chapter 2, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. God shows no partiality. He's the Savior of all men. You call upon Him, He saves. He ought to be called upon. Knowing that He is Lord, reigning over all, that He's good, that He does good, that He's just, we ought to call upon the name of the Lord in times of need. God is to be trusted in. God alone is worthy of our trust and our faith. Proverbs 3, 5-8 Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him. He will make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. He only is Lord. He only is sovereign. He only is the good. Why would you not trust in Him? Why would you trust in anything else? Why would someone not trust in God unless they were somehow predisposed against that which is good? He's to be trusted in. He's to be served. God should be served. That is, there should be actions for God which accompany our thoughts and words about God. Serve Him. Psalm 2.11, Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. The verse begins with the word therefore. In light of God having established His King, Christ, it only makes sense that men should serve Him rather than war against Him. Serve the Lord. Colossians 3, 23 and 24, Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. In other words, when we carry out our God-given duties, even in a common sphere, we, with sanctified motives, as we do that, we are working and serving Christ. We ought to serve Him. God ought to be served. Romans 7, 6. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. Paul doesn't say, well, you've been set free from the law, so don't even worry about any type of obedience. Just make up your own standards and, and you'll do pretty good. 
No, he says we actually do continue to obey the law. And as a matter of fact, we serve the, law, the, the, the Lord and obey the law, not by some powerless written code, but by an indwelling Spirit of grace. We who are believers are able to properly serve God in the power of the Spirit. He empowers us to serve Him. But even if He didn't, apart from any supernatural work of God in the soul, God Himself, as God, deserves to be served. He's God, and we are not. He's Creator, and we are creatures. He is all good. We are none good. We ought to serve Him. And this service should be done with all the heart and all the soul and with all the might. That is, with all that you are, with every faculty given to you, your affections, your mind, your body, everything that you are. In light of who God is and who we are, the only rational response, the only thing that makes sense, is to fully deliver yourself over to Him and serve Him with your whole being. Anything outside of that is irrational, is stupid, is foolish. Now, if this is true in the light of nature, how much more should we who have the light of nature exponentially expanded by the grace of the supernatural work of God do these things? Remember that this topic of religious worship follows the chapter on the liberty that has been won for the saints in Christ Jesus. The expectation of nature is never to be the bar that satisfies the regenerate soul. We don't look at what natural man ought to commonly do and say, well, if I can get by with that, I'm doing pretty good. No, we've been filled with the Holy Spirit of God. How much more should we worship? And remember, this is what the exact same thing that Paul says in Romans 12, except he roots it not in nature, but in the redemptive mercies of God. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual or reasonable, your rational worship. We who've been redeemed ought to do this all the more. It only makes sense for a Christian to yield up himself in worship to God. Anything less than that is foolish. It's irrational. It's unreasonable. It doesn't make any sense. If nature demands this whole man worship of and service to God, how much more should we worship? And by, by that I, I don't mean how much more should we wait for the moment to enrapture us so that we can worship. No, I believe we should study and labor and work to produce worship. Go after it. Don't sit and wait for something to fill you. You go after it and work to know God and give Him good worship. God has pursued us from the foundation of the world. God has passed over millions in history to have you and me. God has wielded nations and armies and wars in past ages for us. To have us. God has ordered the details of providence down through the ages to have your soul as His. Trace it back. As the old men would say, just, just start thinking about your parents, grandparents, great-grandparents. Go as far back as you can. Trace down the providence of God. God has done all of that to bring you to Himself. God's in His very own Son from heaven to earth. 
in order to live and die in our law place out of pure, unmixed grace to set us free. Now, in considering those realities, and those are just a few, those realities of what God has done, do you honestly think that the reasonable response is, well, I reckon I'll take Sundays off, and I won't watch TV, and I'll go to church, and well, maybe I'll get a nap if I'm lucky. Is that the attitude that God has, has garnered from us for all that He's done? Of course not. If our souls are not engaged in truly adoring God and serving Him and praising Him for who He is and what He's done, the day is insignificant. If we're not really worshiping Him, true worship begins with knowing who God is, knowing what He's done, having our hearts stirred to ascribe worth to Him with our whole being, our whole heart, our whole life. That's what worship is, worth-ship, ascribing worth. Think about what you've done today. Your attitude, your words, your singing, your listening. At the, when you lay your head down on the pillow of the night, tonight, can you say, God, all that I've done, I'm showing you what you're worth to me. That's worship. Ascribing worth. Ascribing worth to God means giving Him precedence and credence to His Word, which will in turn influence our worship and the day that we set aside for corporate worship. There's a logical order that has to be followed. True and proper worship only flows from a heart transformed by the grace of God. Remember that the great bondage of humanity, even preceding the legal consequences of our sins against God, is that after the fall, mankind has been so radically distorted by sin and all of his faculties that he does not worship his Creator. And he calls that freedom. He runs from the one he should worship, and he calls that freedom. That's the bondage of sin. But the liberated Christian is restored to that most basic trait of humanity. He turns back to his Creator in worship. That's the freedom. We've been turned to worship the one we were made to worship. And he desires, the liberated Christian desires to worship God as he truly is as He's revealed Himself in His Word. The liberated Christian refuses to settle for a figment of his imagination. I want to know the true God. And he goes after that God to worship that God. The truly free Christian will engage in an ongoing pursuit of God and will desire, because he can now truly desire, to worship God. As we move toward the the idea of the Sabbath, remember what Christ said, the Sabbath was made for man. You go back to the Garden of Eden, in particular, free man. The Sabbath was made for free men. That's the doctrine of the Sabbath. And if you're not a Christian, God is not as concerned about your Sunday as He is your heart. Because He knows when He gets your heart, He'll get your calendar. It begins with true worship. Let's pray.